Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Michelle Myring is editor and founder of The Rattling Wall. She's also director of programs and events at Penn Center USA. So without further ado, welcome Michelle. Thank you guys. Thank you all for coming out. For those of you who are not familiar with our publication, The Rattling Wall is a Los Angeles literary journal that specializes in short fiction, travel essays, and poetry. The Rattling Wall is published by Narrow Books, and the two men who make up Narrow Books are here tonight, Mark and Christopher, and generously funded by Penn Center USA. Penn uh, is a literary nonprofit based in Beverly Hills. We have a membership of more than 800 professional writers. Penn strives to protect the rights of writers around the world to stimulate interest in the written word and to foster a vital literary community among the diverse writers living in the Western United States. It's the belief of Penn that projects like The Rattling Wall promote literary community in a fundamental way. So we're very happy to have Narrow Books and, and Penn Center joining us tonight. Penn also has a long successful history of uh, planning events, literary events here in Los Angeles, and some of those events have taken place at Skylight. So thanks to Narrow, Penn, and Skylight for hosting us here tonight. I think I've packed enough sangria um, to put you all in a mindset to purchase books tonight. So they're for sale at the front counter. And they're worth flipping through. Aside from all of the great writing, we have five wonderful writers here to read for you tonight. The book features a single artist. Uh, each issue does. And this issue one features uh, artwork by Albert Reyes, who's really wonderful. So even if, even if you don't buy a book, which will sadden me deeply, look through it. Albert is, is also worth supporting. And I'm just going to jump. I think we're ready to start. I'm going to jump right into the writer's bios, and then I have a few announcements at the end. I'm going to tell you, if you're interested, how you can apply or, or submit to The Rattling Wall. We're accepting short fiction, travel, and poetry up until November 1st, so I'm going to give you some cues at the end, how you can set out and do that. But first, Jessica Garrison. Jessica is a short story writer from Los Angeles and author of a chapbook collection titled One Dollar Stories. Her work has been published in Flaunt Magazine, Penny Ante 3, Love is the Law Magazine, Pale House, and several online publications. 
She was recently named a finalist for the Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship. We hope that she applies again this year. Please welcome Jessica Garrison. Uh, this story is called Madonna Inn. On the way to the hot springs, we stopped in Pleasant Valley. There was a plane upside down in a field. A few people gathered around. There was a cop car and an ambulance parked on the grass. We walked up to the plane. A sheriff came over. He had a round gut and aviator glasses, like an actor playing a sheriff. You can't be here, he said. He put his hand over Lola's phone. No pictures, you have to go. Is the pilot okay? He escorted us back. Yes, he was wearing his seatbelt. We found a deli where we split a sandwich, turkey and avocado on rye. Next to the deli was a sign. It said Pharmacy Magic RX. There was medical equipment on display on the sidewalk with American flags and balloons. Inside were aisles of scalpels and scissors, small plastic wrapped utensils, rows of wheelchairs, walkers, and crutches. At the back of this store were magic tricks, round eggs and balls, a pen that goes through your hand. There was a small booth, like one at a carnival. A magician stood there smiling. Would you like to see a trick? Yes, we said. He folded a dollar bill into a tiny wad and then disappeared. And then it disappeared in his hand. He pulled it from his pocket, opened it up, put a knife through it, and showed us the hole. When he took out the knife with great celebration, he showed us there was no hole. At the front of the store, above the cashier, sat two ventriloquist dummies. How much are they, I asked. 90 a pair. Can we buy them separately? No, he said, they're brothers. He sat them on the counter. They had oily black hair parted to the side like businessmen. They wore suits with red and green bow ties. We brought them to the car and put them in the back seat. We decided to name them those two. The sun was bright red. We passed hills full of trees and windmills. Those two were in back, open-mouthed and cheerful, their view the center of the dashboard. We stopped at a bar, a small bar, with a red carpet covering the walls. Tinsel was draped over the doorways. A gold-laced mirror hung behind the liquor. We ordered vodka sodas and sat on bar stools. The place was pretty much empty. There was a TV mounted from the ceiling playing a black and white picture of a strip show. A boy sat down. He looked young, like a virgin, with a face I would never remember. He simply had features. He put his elbows on the counter, his eyes half open. I'm Andrew, he said. What? William, he said. Your name is Andrew William? You can call me that. Do you live around here? No, my dad does. Do you live with your dad? I'm staying with him for now. We all did a shot of Patron, and then we did a few more. Andrew William put his face close to Lola's. I want to kiss you both. Lola laughed. We went to the bathroom. It was down a long hallway. When we came out, Andrew William was waiting. I want to kiss you, he said to Lola. Okay, Andrew William, kiss me. He fell asleep on a bench in the corner. The bartender said he does that. He seems lonely, I said. Before we left, we unbuckled those two. They shared a seatbelt in the middle. Lola carried one and I carried the other. We sat them on two chairs facing Andrew William. We turned off the 101 onto the long driveway to the front desk of the Madonna Inn. The end. One of the coolest things about editing this journal and starting this project this year is all of the new people that I have met. 
And I met Lisa Diafo, who's going to read next briefly at the Rattling Wall release at the Hammer. Uh, but this will be the first time that I get to hear Lisa read too, and Kathleen, who follows her. So I just wanted to thank you both for being here tonight. It's always exciting for me to see you guys face to face. Lisa is a native of Los Angeles and first-generation American. Her parents have been her greatest influence. In Colombia, where her mother is from, poetry is part of everyday parlance. She graduated from Brown University in 1997 with a degree in English and American literature. While at Brown, she studied with Michael S. Harper and archived the personal papers of writer and scholar Jay Saunders Redding. Lisa has been working at Yahoo for the last 10 years. Please welcome Lisa. Hey everybody. So I'm gonna just time this. Okay. Um, I am so excited to be here. Can you guys hear me okay or does it sound weird? Okay. I'm so excited to be here because um, this was my local bookstore for 10 years, so thank you for um, inviting me to read here specifically. Um, so this is a place that I just used to float in and out of before and it's nice to be here reading. Um, so I wrote, I composed something short specifically for this venue um, because there, I don't, how many of you have been to this bookstore in the last five years? So how many of you know Lucy? Okay, <laughs> so I, I wrote a short poem for Lucy. It's not the best poem, but it's for Lucy and I think it's appropriate for for the location and the occasion. Lucy. Derived from light, loose, beacon of the book, I would find you as newspaper weight, keeper of heavy hearts. Okay, so that's for Lucy and for this lovely bookstore. And um, I meant to say thank you uh, very much for including me in this and to those of you that published it. Um, the next poem is about shared memories and how we record them, and it's called The Letterpress. I have nine cigar boxes I've abandoned. They're the shells of a nine-part artist book. They belong to a poet, the dreaded profession. He still smokes cigars with his son. At night, he fills the, the boxes with gin. He's reckless, they're cedar. But he is a poet and deals with paper rolled tobacco, not wood. The ginger shells are kept under an IBM typewriter. It's his letterpress, and it gets a lot of use. He writes notes, not letters, not much. He uses fine writing paper you can't imagine. His bed has no headboard. He sleeps pressed on his side. Semicolon, semicolon, semicolon. Punctuated rest. Drunken exclamations from outside, British intonations, bedside reports leave an impression. He scribbles on the sheets, asks his deputy to collect them. Store them in a cedar box, no moths. Take them to press, take them to a fine letter press. At the veteran's wood block, as the block is depressed, he thinks of piled boxes. An abandoned, haunting, cherished gift. An image that can't be pressed. <laughs> um, okay, the next one is a short poem that I wrote after I read the book Gilead. 
Um, I'm not actually keeping track of time very well. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> okay, you, you let me know. Um, and it's, it doesn't have a title, it's untitled. Um, and here we go. We are preachers of sorts, you and I. Associative poets, rendering fingerprints, disregarded treads, as whole notes. Not the mess of quarter notes that is self-regard. So the next one um, I wrote, I had a friend who was in the hospital and um, his feet were very swollen. They looked like they were going to explode and um, being a California, Southern California girl and having had some exposure to synchronized swimming as, as a little girl, this is what I thought to compare his feet to. Mm -hmm. Your toes are like the synchronized swimmer who orchestrates beauty underwater, suspending breath Submerged sacrifice. Beating legs keep time for the pair we follow. Released, she gasps behind her smile. Stiff as a gelatin in her hair. Chlorine soldier awaiting her discharge. <laughs> okay, um, and um, am I doing okay on time? Okay. The next one um, is based on a myth from the Amazon, so I don't know if you know, but there are some pink dolphins that, that swim in the Amazon, and um, there's this myth that um, every so often one of these male dolphins comes ashore wearing a hat and tricks, you know, an unsuspecting young thing um, into following him back. And this mythical dolphin is called Boto, and that's the name of the poem. The hat, his forehead, the music, the muse, the hop, his backstroke, the mudslide, the snatch, the dive, encante, the river, the storm, the hound, smells nothing, the water, the wall, the search, the story, the spinster, the fruit, the man, the bottle, the lover, gone mute, the stench, her madness, the lifetime, that suit, the hat, his forehead, the music, once muse. So, and I have seemed to have an obsession with muses because the poem that was published in the Rodling Wall is called Muse. And um, you'll probably pick up that this is about my daily commute to Yahoo <laughs> um, and what I think about what I don't do. The broken Subrate camera sits unused in the closet, the actor in untold stories, unscripted sequences. I'm told there is a repairman in Burbank where I drive every day, yet return home broken, hopeful toward weekend light and sound. And um, the last one um, is takes some images from the Andes in Colombia, and it's for my grandma. So I wanted to close with this one. It's called La Cueva del Esplendor. Inside this human body is a countryside, beautiful green and blue cells giving depth, abandoned dwellings, where only soldiers on rainy days enter. Hikers study falling jewels, how earthly cold becomes human heat and human dwellings can be explosive, bringing aging parents to tears. Tears of lore, how a fantastical fall came to be, and who, who, who first found it not long ago. 
merely liquefied jewels that could wake the dead, who in dreams visit this place, clutching vines and dirt, meeting grandchildren. So long tears hang like nests, like hung up hammocks, like this too heavy bota. Thank you. You all are a very appreciative audience. Very rarely do poets get the full clap at the end of the poem, so I like that. Kathleen Tyler lives in Los Angeles where she teaches English at a local high school. Her publications include The Secret Box and My Florida. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals, including Visions International, Runes, Solo, Poetry Motel, Margie, Seams, and Cider Press Review. She has been featured reader at many Southern California venues, and her poem, My Florida, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Please welcome Kathleen Tyler. Thank you. Um, when she was saying she's driving to Yahoo, I kept saying, is that a city right here? I was like, where? And okay, um, I want to thank Michelle for having me in the journal. I think it's like, it's beautiful. And um, my students, by the way, thought the cover was great. I love the artwork in it. And um, so I think I'll start with the poem that I have in the um, journal because it is about art and making art. And it's, it's from the series kind of based on these paintings by um, the Russian painter Kandinsky. And it's called First Abstraction. Um, starts with um, an epigraph from Kandinsky. So, the creation of the work of art is the creation of the world. Because you were hungry when the first human cry collapsed the world, the hood of your perambulator, a canopy of vines, then the great flood of color you felt more than watched, your eyes margined with black, celia sweeping the sky clear of blue, little clouds attached to your lids. The naming began, what had been silent burst into song deep notched, the wing bone of a mute swan held to someone's grief, a great slash lush in its desire. There have been many singers, other singers, many ones, figuring cast in the dust, iconic vagina, a great sideways song, meditating on the one sound that called you into being. You grasp yellow as if centuries had not passed, had not slipped past. It's irresponsible appeal the only answer possible to this endless profusion. You woke to color, exploding the canvas, no longer a soft pillow for your eye, awe-encompassing image that plies the universe, artful forest of our beginning. Thank you. Um, the next poem was kind of inspired by a friend of mine. She says, well, she always sits in, in coffee shops and cafes writing. She's writing with a journal. And someone said, well, how can you do that? Don't people bother you? And she said, no, no one ever bothers me. In fact, I could probably 
pull out a gun and put it in my mouth and you know no one would say anything so you know I mean maybe we all feel like that sometimes in cafes I don't know but I, I was sitting um, <laughs> I happened to be sitting in a cafe thinking about that I was in looking at that uh, an exhibit actually the Kandinsky paintings and so I kind of wrote this poem and it refers actually to a, a, a different artist and anyway it's called sitting in cafe flader mouse with a gun in my mouth. <laughs> I have lived so long in someone else's body as the dancer inhabits the body of Rhea Monk who shot herself in the chest in 1911. Another affair that presupposes the heart might be transformed. Heap of bones on my plate, an emptied chair, loneliness swagged, in the clothing of last century. In a kind of horror vacui, the room sucks in tourists. They angle past my table, its single bead of light. Refusing to cross the, back, the black line drawn between the suicide and her incarnation that preens from the painting, which is not mortal though, of Flinstead mobile staves and treble clefts I attempt to assemble tumbles over black and white tiles death mask morphed into naked breast a stroke of gold lily forlorn over this vision of my own being subsumed by love's dream this sad music jumbles from my hands to the floor I know sometimes it's hard to tell when they're over. <laughs> I can't tell either. Um, this is off, this is also from um, one of the um, like I did this whole series on these paintings at um, Kandinsky. It's called Small Dream in Red, 1925. My body a boat, little sun that bears us. The last birthday in the world, rocking. The only gift I can give you constellations of hungry birds their song a dropped compass tomorrow has no synonym its slim fingers cling to a red arc mortal chinoiserie on shore cherry trees in the orchards blooming tiny couches of dew where will we rest when the yellow red and blue diagonals that pin us to the painting topple. Uh, this is from another series, Salt Country 2. Our exodus began in darkness, an egg boat slewing like a tiny moon. We gave up our furred accomplices left the cave of our early longing, woke to a changed world, eyes beating against the unaccustomed light. Slowly it became apparent how much unoccupied space the inside emptied out. On the way down, ruins of oil rigs shadowed us as if they could pump the sweetness of return from their own depths. Trails like monstrous worm burrows through the brown hills. 
Someone slipped in the rumor of a wimbrel's cry, unrippling clouds so far from shore. Even if we could glimpse the coast, there would be no statues, no stars tattering the night's heavy metals. We forage for something just reasonable, a life we are sure happened, dreams mouthed in soft dirt, some mewling not yet smothered. If you've ever been hiking up in Kennethon Park, I mean, it's, you see all those oil rigs right in front of the ocean, yeah. Now, I'm going to finish with a, a, a poem from my book called My Florida. Um, in the kingdom of my sin, a lion stares one-eyed from a torn Ringling Brothers poster, the monstrous curved teeth of its upper jaw ripped away. What little fever ate through the paper, swelling and swelling my brain. I put my eyeball to its eyeball, but I backed down first. The one I bore and the one I bore her with, daughter, husband, threw their longing at me like raw meat through the bars of a cage. I could not help but devour it. When I was finally engorged, they emptied my body, the number seven etched in bold old-fashioned script along the lion's mane. The eighth sin, the most deadly, not even counted. They asked for the keys to the U-Haul, and I gave them. What kind eats most in this animal world? The kind whose crimes are greatest, or whose songs are sweetest. They backed out of the driveway, trunks and knapsacks strapped to the roof. The beast roared its warning. Death cures us of our terror of death. What cure is there for the terror of love? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you guys for a favor now before I introduce Lou. Because I've been so excited doing this, launching the book, I've been uh, taking lots of pictures of all the readings that we do. And when I go home, I end up with a lot of pictures of the book itself, um, which are pretty uh, uneventful. And so I'm going to take a picture now of all of you. You're going to wait? Yeah. I can cut you out. No, no, I'm good. I'm going to hold like a finger over you? Okay. So if everybody can wave for me, I'm going to go to three, and then you guys are going to, you guys are going to wave. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be like my first live reading picture. Okay. You're, I, I'm not going to tell you squeeze in. I don't know if you're sitting next. Okay. One, two, three. Everyone wave. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So good. Okay, Lou Matthews, thank you for humoring me on that. This means more than you know. Lou Matthews' first novel, L.A. Breakdown, about illegal street racing, was picked by the Los Angeles Times as a best book of 1999. He has received a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction, a California Arts Council Fiction Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, and a Catherine Ann Porter Prize. He has published recent work in Mother Jones, Tin House, and the last four issues of Black Clock. 
his story, the moon reaches down for me like the fist in a Siqueiros painting. Uh, was was chosen for Black Clock 13. The mixtape, 24 stories from the first 12 issues of the magazine. His novella, The Irish Sextet, won the Fail Better novella contest and is being published serially in the magazine in 2010 and 11. Lou's been a great friend to the magazine so far. Please welcome Lou Matthews. My daughter always says about my resume, guy sounds great on paper. <laughs> um, you've got a great spread here, and sangria and beer, it's sort of, a, it's one of those cutting edge things, the double edged things on that, basically you have to understand that I am blocking the way <laughs> to what you really want. Um, I decided not to read the story that is in Rapping Wall, Doña Nita. Um, I've read it about four times now, and it's also, it's a very solemn story. Um, and I decided, given the drinking crowd, you need something a little lighter. And it's also shorter, but it also gives you more incentive to buy Rattling Wall, because you won't know the story. And I'll guarantee it's better than the one I'm going to read. Um, the second thing I want to talk about, another reason to, to buy Rattling Wall, is it's a good future investment. The story I'm reading tonight was published in 2004 in a little publication anthology called Dust Up edited by uh, Nathaniel Milton and Phil Hay. And if you look at who's in that <coughs> anthology, there were some known names at the time, Amy Bender, Alice Siebold, Robert Oldstead, Glenn David Gold. <laughs> but there were three writers in there in particular you hadn't heard of at the time, Danzy Senna, Phil Hay, and David Benioff. This was before Clash of the Titans, Troy, and Game of Thrones. Um, these anthologies are now very collectible, particularly if they're signed, about a hundred bucks. So think about that when you look at the price on the front. So this is the story. I didn't pay him to do this. Believe in books. This is a story um, that, this is very fairly short. Um, it's taken from a collection called Hollywoodski, um, which centers on uh, a faded screenwriter named Dale Davis. And his friend Oscar says, why don't you call yourself a failed screenwriter? And Dale says, I worked in television for 30 years. The bar is set too low. You cannot fail, you can only fade. <laughs> so this is Dale enjoying his breakfast story is called Gower Gulch. I liked the power breakfast at Denny's about two in the afternoon when the heavy hitters are gone and it's just me and the philosophers. <laughs> this is a famous Denny's, corner of Sunset and Gower, the first 24-hour Denny's. Jim Morrison used to pass out here. Andy Kaufman used to pass the bus tables here. It's across from Paramount and that lends, that lends a certain wistfulness to the whole scene. You have a whole lot of people who shouldn't have any hope at all, who got some, working, making, once making big money at the studio. They're not over it yet. One of the things that worries me in this modern culture is that there are a lot of people that survive that shouldn't. They all come to Denny's. <laughs> They should have been left out on a rock like the Aztecs did. Instead, they're ordering skillet breakfasts and taking up space. 
The two guys behind me, one of them's eating a skillet breakfast, which is a sure sign of stupidity because they're not cooked to order. The other, Al, isn't. He's worried about his stomach. He's got ice water into which he's poured half and half. The one working on the farmer skillet pretty good is Petey Powell, who was a bad child actor about 30 years ago. Not even in reruns now, but he has cards that have his 16-year-old visage and he likes to pass them out in lieu of tips. <laughs> Petey, in his wisdom, says to Al, maybe you should have some coffee. You want some coffee? Al says, nah, nah, no more coffee. I'm too tense, you know. Al hasn't had anything to make him tense since he got disability 12 years ago, but Petey takes him seriously, which tells you a lot about Petey. <laughs> That's L.A., he says. That's the pressure. <laughs> Al says, stirs up his ice water. I'm just sort of jangled. Yeah, Petey says. Maybe you should learn to meditate. You want me to teach you how to meditate? Al does a double take so hard his chins quiver. You teach me? Are you kidding? I've been meditating since I was eight. <laughs> you don't need no help. You know already? You don't know about me? I'm famous for that. Al pauses in a way that lets you know that he's said this a lot. As a meditator, I'm a motherfucker. <laughs> Petey picks up his skillet to scrape the last of the potatoes. Al finally sees me watching. Shut up, Davis, he tells me. I know what you're thinking. Petey says, what? And Al says, just ignore him. Which Petey successfully does and always will because he's got that actor thing going. Al smooths his palm over his heartburn and then pats himself. Meditator, I'm a regular Buddha. You look like him, Petey says. Every once in a while, Petey can surprise you. Al has a superb beer belly. You probably don't know this, Al says. I was born on Buddha's birthday, May 2nd. That's a true fact. Petey thinks about this. Either that or he's out of potatoes because he's paused. <laughs> know who else was born on May 2nd, Al says? May 2nd, Petey says carefully. So was Harry Truman, May 2nd. Figure that one out. The guy who dropped the atom bomb. <laughs> Petey thinks this over for a while, and you can tell he's really concentrating this time because he's scratching his sideburn with his fork. That makes sense to me, Petey says. I mean, when you think about it, they both wanted peace. <laughs> I'm pretty quiet about it, but a small snort escapes, and the coffee's coming out my nose. Not looking at me. Looking up at the ceiling, Al says, Shut up, Davis. If you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't be here. Another great friend of the magazine uh, has been James Greer, who will be our last reader tonight. James is the author of two novels, The Failure and Artificial Light, 
which won a California Book Award for Best Debut Novel. He is also the author of the nonfiction book, Guided by Voices, A Brief History, a biography about a band for which he once played bass guitar. He lives in Los Angeles and writes in France. Please welcome James Greer. Yeah, I gotta change that bio. I haven't been to France for like a year and a half. It sounded good at the time. I did write the, my last novel in, when I was living in France, but I've heard it too many times now. I live in Los Angeles. I write in Los Angeles. Sometimes I write in other places too. This is a um, this is an excerpt from my story in the the Rattling Wall because it would be too long otherwise. And by way of explanation, I should say that um, the first part of it is purportedly an essay written by Captain Tobias Hume in 1642. He was a real person, but he was not, um, he did not write this essay. And the second part of the uh, excerpt is a commentary on that, uh, on that essay in the form of a nightmare. Um, the story is called The Rose Encyclopedia. Uh, this essay is called On Exhaustion. One can, without fear of argument, posit that there exist several forms of exhaustion, these being spiritual, moral, physical, intellectual, and fake. Of the first two, little mention need be made, as anyone who has experienced either will immediately recognize conditio votum cognatio cultus dispertus, about which the less said, the better. In my own particular jardin de, de supplice there doth grow one or two daimonic subcultures, the which, if given proper physic, may someday flower in that yellow so feared by the writer of La Fanfarlo, and throughout history has ever been given or to signify wickedness in the works of Galen, Avicenna, Paracelsus, Laurentius, and Christopher's Avega, among others. Happily, the reader has chanced to experience firsthand the next two and by far the most common forms of exhaustion, that is, the physical and the intellectual. The physical may have, as Sir Thomas Brown wrote, two causes, excess exertion or excess of humor in the blood. Either should be treated with leeches as soon as possible, the better for the purge system to reanimate itself. The work of doctors Watson and Crick has proved, as timeless work has a strange habit of doing, that this practice is not only sound, but based at the same time in the most ancient and modern realms of science, which to say, the science of imagination, where precision rules and fancy bends herself to her master's tasks. One need only look in Matthiolus's fifth book of medicinal epistles, not to mention Antonius Musa, that wonderful doctor to Kaiser Augustus, in his book, which he writ uh, of the virtues of Bethany, for confirmation of the principles of scrupulous adherence to qui semel id pateramistum and all that implies. Of intellectual exhaustion, both the causes and cures are much in doubt, and yet it is that with that particular malady, I myself am most concerned because it is that from which I now suffer without the least clue as to why or how it was contracted or how to rid myself of the thing. Hours upon end I have spent digging through my library, and yet nowhere in Jason Patensis, Marsilius Ficinus, Melanchthon, Siladicus, Hercules de Saxonia, Mercatus, Porta, Saliger, Rodiginus, Pentheus, Vitellio, even good old Hippocrates, to mention but a few, could I find the answers I sought. I had hoped 
by completing the first thousand page draft of a secret history of the voyage to Mickleberry land, and then immediately undertaking my own secret voyage across the seas to the country of the Gauls would prove a tonic for my depleted intellectual reserves. But none of that. I am as empty as a runlet of Barbados and cannot fathom it. Happily, I should have spent more than 20 hours every day for the past two months writing the secret history. But like by drowsing the other four, I so damped the fires of inspiration they have all gone to ash and blown to the four cor corners. I'm now consulting Burton's ex excellent anatomy of melancholy for some remedy, if not for my exhaustion, at least for the sadness it has provoked. Of the fifth kind of exhaustion, which is to say, fake, one need only kick the scurfy imposter in some tender part and hie him back to work. The references to a thousand-page draft of a secret voyage to Mickleberry land, likely Ireland, and a further voyage across the seas to the country of the Gauls, obviously France, are puzzling because no evidence of either such a work or such a voyage exists. I think I would know if that evidence existed. I think even if every trace of that evidence had met with history's eraser, I would still know. I would feel the existence of these things deep in the stitching of myself somewhere. Because we're the same person, Tobias, Hume, and me. There's no difference. I can look out my window at the Samuel Summers magnolia or the towering white fur at the far margin of the hedgerow and know the same things Captain Hume knew in his stone-walled room at the London Charter House. To wit, that I have broken every rule that was ever made by nature or man. I have. The small hairs on the back of a fly I have plucked and used for toothpicks. I've driven through the sun without singeing my flesh. I've dive-bombed volcanoes with my fists. I don't pray. I beg. I don't stand. I sit. These are my two essential characteristics. If you know these two things, you know everything you need to know in order to classify me. Winter's long embrace gives way to the cold fingers of spring. I am thorned, you know. Most of the time you only see my thorns, and these are enough to keep you away. Spring stretches everything, from length of day to spine of tree. We all go taller and thicken slightly, and in many cases, froth into flower. Mine are amber-yellow, grown from briar stalk. I'm hardy, but the soil around me must be kept well-forked. Do not so much as utter the name greenfly or caterpillar in my presence. These things are anathema. Two children playing catch next door, a ball rolls in the road, the screech of tires, Mr. T. Jeffrey W. Henslow cutting buds in his greenhouse, cocks his good ear, squinting, as if trying to see the sounds he thought he heard. He shakes his head to, to signify nothing, returns to his work. The scent of blood reaches me at the gate of the white fence, from where I sit, laughing at fragile things, immersed in self-pity at my recklessness, my pride, the brevity of blooms, I see a piece of colored chalk that no one now will use. Thank you. You guys have a lot of booze to drink. Please stick around for a drink. Guacamole, I make excellent guacamole. I included cilantro this time, really branching out into new things. Buy a book. Uh, we have two upcoming dates. I'm going to read alone this weekend. I'm taking a chance telling all you guys this. So I'm going to read at Hotel Cafe this weekend on Sunday. So if you're interested in hearing me read poems, it's going to happen. As a part of the Tongue and Groove Salon, 
Uh, Conrad Romo is wonderful, and we at Penn and the Rattling Wall love supporting him. So if you're uh, in the area, Hotel Cafe on Sunday, come by and, and say hi to me. And uh, 6 o'clock, 6 to 7.30. And I believe it costs $6, and I'm going to make it worth your while. <laughs> I'm going to... Pardon me? It's, it's uh, one Sunday each month. So, And then the Rattling Wall has its next reading on June 29th at Book Soup. And two of the contributors in the audience tonight are going to be reading. Elisa Slaughter, who's here, and Libby Flores. They're going to be joined that night by Sam Dunn and by a poet, K.M. Droney, who is a new friend of mine, and Eric Clare is also. Hey! Eric Clare is also in the audience tonight and going to be there. So uh, June 29th at Book Soup. Book Soup, uh, I used to be the manager of Book Soup for last year, actually. So um, that feels like my bookstore, mm -hmm. even though I feel very comfortable being right here, too. If you guys have any questions uh, about the rattling wall, or if you have any questions about uh, our next submission cycle. We have a book coming out on November 1st. That'll be issue two, uh, but we're currently accepting submissions for issue three. So uh, come up and say hi to me afterward or find us at therattlingwall.com. Thank you all so much for coming. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.